Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. At Mint Mobile, we like to do the opposite of what Big Wireless does. They charge you a lot, we charge you a little. So naturally, when they announced they'd be raising their prices due to inflation, we decided to deflate our prices due to not hating you. That's right. We're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Hey there, it's Michelle Norris. I'm host of a podcast called Your Mama's Kitchen. When I travel, I'm usually looking for a way to find a taste of home when I'm not at home. And one of the things I love to do when I am at home is entertain. And Airbnb allows me to do that. When I was in California recently, I rented a house that had a great kitchen. And when we were sitting around the table, we're all thinking, we're in someone else's house. Someone could be in all of our homes as well. If you have a home, but you're not always at home, you have an Airbnb. Your home might be worth more than you think. Find out how much at airbnb.com slash host. From the Third Coast International Audio Festival and PRX, I'm Gwen Maxi, and this is Best of the Best, the 2018 Third Coast Festival broadcast. The Third Coast Festival is an independent arts organization in Chicago dedicated to celebrating great audio stories. All year long, we scour the globe for the best work we can find. Then we share it in a variety of ways, via radio and podcast, on the internet, at live listening events. And we host an international competition to honor all the wonderful stories our medium has to offer, to say nothing of the talented producers who make them. This year, we received 550 entries from 26 different countries, including Qatar, Argentina, the Netherlands, Egypt, and South Africa. Then it was up to the judges, themselves highly accomplished radio makers, to do the hard job of choosing the winners. In the end, 12 documentaries won top honors. These are the stories we're happy to bring you in the next hour, recently crowned at our awards celebration in Chicago, hosted by Kathy Tu and Tobin Lowe of the podcast Nancy. We are so excited to be here to host the Third Coast Awards tonight. We are like nerdily excited to be here. We got matching outfits. Uh, But all kidding aside, we are here to celebrate the best of the best. What the Third Coast Festival has created has spread around the world. On Best of the Best, we bring you excerpts of the winning stories and a look behind the scenes with the producers who make this remarkable work. We begin this hour with a story about the American-led battle against the Islamic State. It's been hailed by the U.S. government as one of the most precise air campaigns ever. But what happens when those airstrikes are based on faulty information? For its in-depth reporting, its clarity, and the impressive interplay between the personal story and the investigation at the highest levels of government, the judges gave uncounted civilian casualties in Iraq the Third Coast Best Documentary Honorable Mention Award. The story was produced by Annie Brown with reporter Osmet Khan for The Daily with host Michael Barbaro from The New York Times. It follows the events of one night in the life of Basim Razo, an Iraqi man who lived with his wife and daughter on a large plot of land next to his brother and his brother's family. 
So at that night, I must have been up until 12 or 1. And then turn off my computer and uh, check the doors. Everything is locked. Mm-hmm. Turn off the lights, go upstairs, go to Toka's room, check on her, cover her. And then just go into my bed and uh, lie down and uh, just fall asleep. And and then what happened? And then uh, uh, I woke up. Uh, I can smell something. I can taste, taste something in my mouth. The smell, this terrible, terrible smell. The smell, I cannot describe it. I really cannot describe it. I can smell something stingy, very powerful, disgusting. And uh, I looked and I can see the sky above me. The ceiling has fell off my room. And for uh, like a minute, I really felt that I had a nightmare. I was in a dream. I did not realize what has just happened. But then uh, I looked left to my wife. I could not see her. I did not see her. All I saw was debris. Some parts of the ceiling had broken and fell on her. So all I see was cement and concrete blocks. I did not see her. So I tried to get up. My bed had broken into a V-shape. I felt something warm in my back. I touched my back and I uh, felt something gooey, gluey. That was Mm -hmm. blood. My foot was shattered, my left foot. Uh, I tried to get off bed, but I screamed. I did not realize it was my hip that was broken, but I knew there was something. And then I started calling my wife and my daughter. Mm. No answer. This, everything you're describing sounds surreal. The waking up, seeing the stars, seeing wood and cement where your wife should be. Did you, did you understand what was happening? Yes, I knew. I knew the houses had been bombed. I knew we'd been bombed. Of course, I realized that at that time I knew. But uh, the first thought that came into my mind is why. Why have we, why our houses have been struck? This is the first thought that came to me. Why? God, Ya Allah, Yusilhum bil ma'i wa thalji wal barad. Subasim wakes up in the Mosul General Hospital, heavy with bandages. His hip is broken. He's in incredible pain. And through this sort of mess of nurses and orderlies, he sees his brother-in-law, who tells him that Mayada and Tuka have died, that his brother Mohanad has died, and that his nephew Najib, a teenager, who Basim was really close to, had also died. I lost my wife. I lost my daughter. Uh, This is life for me now. I just asked God to cleanse them in 
water and ice. This is the standard that we do for the deaf. Uh, I ask God to give, to give them a better place than they used to be, give them better friends than they had, and that we meet when it's time for us to meet. Within 24 hours of the bombing, a video appears on the YouTube channel of the U.S.-led coalition bombing Iraq and Syria. It shows black and white footage of a triangular compound, farmland, and two homes in the center. The aircraft that's filming it is rotating above, and you watch as one missile hits one of the houses, and just a few seconds later, another missile hits the other. And you can tell that this was an incredibly precise hit. It doesn't hit anywhere else on that triangular compound. You see one home and then the other in a matter of seconds just disappear into puffs of black smoke. I was, I was in tears when I saw the movie. The precision of the bombing is unmistakable. I mean, two missile strikes, one on my brother's house, and one on my house. If you look at the driveway, if you look at the surrounding areas, nothing else was touched. So how could this be a mistake? This wasn't some mistake. This wasn't an attempt to hit an ISIS facility nearby. They were targeted. And so the coalition, led by the United States, uploads videos like this, thinking that it's celebrating its own precision. Not only to show the precision of this campaign, but just how successfully it was going. U.S. military officials have repeatedly said that this is the most precise air campaign in U.S. military history, and says it's killed tens of thousands of ISIS fighters. Their estimates are between 50 and 70,000 in Iraq and Syria. And in Iraq, only 466 civilians. That's a ratio of 0.6% of strikes, less than 1%, resulting in civilian deaths. That is remarkably precise. Exactly. But Bossom's family members were part of those very few civilians killed by the American air war. That they counted? No. His wife, Mayada, his daughter, Tuka, his brother, Mohanad, and his nephew, Najib. They were tallied in that column of ISIS fighters. That is when I decided that uh, I need to get justice and I need to get answers to why, why they did this to me. This was only the beginning of Bassam's fraught relationship with the U.S. government. Hear the rest of his story and what the U.S. government offered in compensation for the death of his family at our website, thirdcoastfestival.org. Uncounted, Civilian Casualties in Iraq was produced by Annie Brown with reporter Osmet Khan and edited by Lisa Tobin for The Daily, hosted by Michael Barbaro from The New York Times. The winner of this year's Third Coast Best Documentary Bronze Award tackles a problem that's become, unfortunately, all too common, wrongful convictions. When police showed up to question John Thompson, he was worried that he had sold drugs to an undercover cop. He was a small-time drug dealer, after all. So when he realized that they were investigating a murderer, 
John actually laughed. He had no history of violence of any kind, let alone murder. But the victim was a young white man from a prominent New Orleans family, and John was a 23-year-old black man in the wrong place at the wrong time. Absurd though this murder charge was, the gravity of the situation became very clear when John was convicted and sentenced to death. New Yorker writer Andrew Morantz and public defender Sarah Lustbader pick up the story. And just a note, the story contains some explicit language. John decided to fight. He sent out dozens of letters to all these lawyers who he thought might be able to help with his appeals. And in 1988, his case ended up on the desk of these two corporate lawyers in Philadelphia. I'm Michael Banks. I'm an attorney and a partner at Morgan Lewis. I've been here for 35 years. And I'm Gordon Cooney, an attorney and a partner at Morgan Lewis, and I've been here for 33 years. That makes me the senior statesman, right? I'm the junior rookie. He's kid. In the two. Kid. (laughs) They really were rookies in 1988. They were just a few years into their careers, and they'd only done civil litigation defending big companies against lawsuits. They had never done a criminal case before. I had never been in a prison, period. But they did have reservations about the death penalty, and they knew they wanted to take on a pro bono appeal. And the Thompson case found us at that point. Michael and Gordon flew down to meet with John at Angola. I'm sure he was dismayed by our youth. (laughs) If you call Central Casting and say, send me a lawyer over who's going to save my life and exonerate me, I I don't think we were what he had in mind. John was definitely skeptical. He was thinking, I'm in trouble. Here you go again. Um, I tell you, don't. So money, money respect money. That's the bottom fucking line. And so here I'm, I'm accused of killing the richest fucking man's son in New Orleans. And here come these high power profile ass lawyers. Got to be able to relate to this fucking father. Bottom line. Didn't trust them. Fuck no, trust them for what? I'm like, where y'all from? Michael and them came from. Both of my lawyers came from extended lawyers' families. Their daddy was lawyers, you know, chip off the old blocks. And so you come from old money. And so that means you're going to be able to relate to them more than you can relate to your own fucking client. Because at some point, you got to look at this and say, damn, that could have been me. Or damn, that could be my son. So Michael and Gordon had to build up trust, slowly. And they had to learn how to do a death penalty appeal as they went. So they started poring over the details of the original trial and trying to find what their strategy would be for the appeal. Based on the record they were looking at, it really seemed like John was guilty. What were the odds that he had been falsely accused and convicted of two separate crimes? But the truth is that they didn't know what they didn't know. So at the same time, John was learning the law. He was in prison and he was exchanging information with his friends on death row about their cases. In fact, John noticed that one of these friends had this amazing investigator who was handing over all these really detailed daily reports of her work. So I'm reading his reports. I say, damn, she good. (laughs) You know, because I'm looking at detail, detail shit. I'm like, fuck, I ain't going to have none of my fucking reports. I'm reading his reports, and I'm realizing I got an investigator that I ain't never seen none of her fucking reports. I get on the phone and say, hey, hey, y'all, where is my investigator report? Do I have an investigator that's working on my case? So John called Michael and Gordon and said, guys, we need to hire this exact investigator. Her name was Elisa Abalafia. They said, John, we already have an investigator on your case. But he said, no, this one. So they did. Michael and Gordon looked at the records from the original trial, and they found a lot of issues. All these issues dragged on in the courts for years. At one point, John's lawyers got a hold of some police files indicating that the witnesses against John had been paid a reward. And they thought, 
hey, the defense definitely should have had this a long time ago. And this was because of the Brady rule, which, remember, is the Supreme Court ruling that the prosecution has to give over to the defense anything that could potentially be favorable to their client. Since the prosecution in John's case hadn't handed over those police files, Michael and Gordon suddenly wondered, well, what else are they hiding? They showed this to the judge, and the judge ordered the prosecutors to hand over, quote, every scrap of paper related to the case. But the prosecutors just refused. They just didn't do it. Michael and Gordon press on. They appeal on all of these issues. But they lost. They lost at the lower court and the higher court. They lost in state court. They lost in federal court. And the Supreme Court refused to hear their case. The agonizing sense of frustration and and fear at some level about what that meant, um, I think for both of us, it was it was pretty consuming. After 11 years, in April of 1999, Michael and Gordon exhausted all the possible options for appeals. We flew down to Angola on a Monday morning in April to tell John about the final writ of execution. We had to tell him he needed to get himself emotionally prepared for the likelihood that he was going to die in a month. So we walked into the prison, and as soon as he saw us, uh, he hugged us and said, what's the date? Meaning, what's the execution date that I have? And we said, John, it's May 20th. And he hung his head, and he looked back up at us, and he said, do you think we might be able to get that changed? John Jr., my youngest son, is the first person in my family to graduate from high school, and his graduation date's the next day. Um, And we said we would try, but we thought it was highly unlikely. He then spent the next 15 minutes asking us to assure him that we would look after his sons after he was gone. At that meeting, Michael and Gordon told John that there was one last recourse, one thing they could try, and that would be for them to file a motion for ineffective assistance of counsel, that John should basically claim that they had botched his case. Like, what? I was so fucked up about that. I said, man, y'all crazy as motherfucker. No. They were like, what you mean, no? I'm like, no, man, no. no. If that's what it's going to take to save my life, I must don't be, deserve to be here. Because at that point, I realized that y'all was doing everything in y'all power. Everything that it was for y'all to be able to do, y'all did. Y'all didn't hesitate. Y'all didn't ask the coast for no money. None of that shit. Y'all was like, um, y'all was 100% in. And when I told them that, it really fucked them up in the head that I didn't want them to do that. And, and, and it was like, this could save your life. I'm like, no, it can't. That you, that just because you're doing that, that ain't no fucking guarantee. No, it can't save my life. I said, well, well, it'll destroy my life if they still killed me. And I know y'all did this shit and it ain't right. Because y'all was effective. Y'all did do everything y'all could do in y'all power to save my life. So if this is the route you want to go, I'm not going to be a part of it. And the rest of the time he spent consoling us. It was without a hint of emotion for him. You guys did a great job. Don't take this as a failure. You've done more for me than I ever could have expected. It was unreal. I can remember when he leaving 
you know, I can remember like, you know, just putting my head down and like saying, wow, you know, wow, that's how this shit going in. Michael and Gordon left Angola for the long drive back to New Orleans. That hour was the quietest time that Gordon and I ever spent together. We could not muster up a word. We were probably an hour into the drive, and I just decided I can't stand this anymore. At least I'll distract myself by seeing what voicemails I have. And probably the second voicemail in my, uh, my, my voicemail box was a message from our investigator and who basically said, you know, Gordon, this is Elisa. I found something really important. Please call me right away. I know you're in New Orleans. Here's my number. Call me right away. And there was a lot of excitement in her voice. John Thompson did not go on to become a household name. But maybe he should have. To hear how John beats the odds in a system stacked against him, listen to the entire story, John Thompson versus American Justice, on our website, thirdcoastfestival.org. The story was produced for the New Yorker Radio Hour in partnership with WNYC by Andrew Morantz of The New Yorker and Sarah Lustbader of The Fair Punishment Project and Catherine Wells. The story was edited by David Krasnow. It won this year's Third Coast Best Documentary Bronze Award. You're listening to Best of the Best, the 2018 Third Coast Festival broadcast. I'm Gwen Maxi. The Third Coast International Audio Festival is an independent arts organization in Chicago. Today, we're listening to the winners of the Third Coast Festival Richard H. Driehaus Foundation competition. Hear all this year's winners, along with a trove of other great stories from around the world anytime at thirdcoastfestival.org and on our podcast, ReSound. Coming up, the Battle of the Bulge like you've never heard it. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. Recently, I asked Mint Mobile's legal team if big wireless companies are allowed to raise prices due to inflation. They said yes. And then when I asked if raising prices technically violates those onerous two-year contracts, they said, what the f*** are you talking about, you insane Hollywood ass. So to recap, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows full terms at mintmobile.com. Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news... All right, I'll do it. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. Welcome back to Best of the Best from the Third Coast International Audio Festival and PRX. I'm Gwen Maxi. 
Today, we're listening to the winners of our annual documentary competition. This year's Third Coast Best Documentary Foreign Language Award went to a story from Denmark that was only three minutes long, but what a three minutes. One Third Coast judge said, it's amazing how quickly a lump can form in your throat while you're listening. That's why I fell in love with radio. This is the story of three generations and one disease, beautifully constructed in three short scenes. Min mor har fundet en rød margretskål frem til mig. Det gjorde hun også altid, da jeg var lille, når jeg var syg og skulle kaste op. Nu passer hun mig igen. A mom is getting ready to go to work while her son calls out from the other room. As she brushes her hair, she notices that it's falling out. Later, her son stands watching in curiosity while the woman's mother shaves her head. In the final scene, the woman appreciates the new sensation of summer raindrops on her bare scalp. The best is summer rain. Summer Rain was this year's winner of the Third Coast Best Documentary Foreign Language Award. It was produced by Nena Hauge Christensen for Danish Radio P1. To listen to the entire piece with an accompanying English translation by Radio Atlas, go to thirdcoastfestival.org. Some stories aren't easily categorized. And thank goodness. Because it's often in that undefined space that great things happen. For those pieces made just because, we have the Third Coast Skylarking Award. About this winning entry, the judges agreed that it was charming, surprising, unguarded, bold, and brutally honest. Many remarked that they just wanted to be friends with Italian writer Jonathan Zenti. We think you'll feel exactly the same way once you hear this sometimes funny, sometimes melancholy, always touching essay. Here's a taste. I made this recording a couple of years ago. I had just finished an interview with one of my closest friends and I left the recorder running as I usually do to catch some of those happy little sounds of family life. We had tea in the living room. I made everyone laugh with a story about my dad introducing himself naked to a girl I was dating. And then my friend asked me to come upstairs to check something on the internet. I left the recorder in the living room, still running. When I listen back, I hear my friend's mother and sister laughing about my naked father's story. Her mother says, Que simpatico, he is so funny. And then she whispers, He should diet though, because it's too big for the staircase. <laughs> and then they laugh. Yes, I'm fat, and I know that I'm fat. I know because every day something or someone reminds me I'm fat. 
Like when I walk around the subway in Rome, always so crowded, so full of people, and the squeezed man next to me looks at me and I know he's thinking, we are all gonna die now. Or like that evening a date took me to her friend's place for dinner, and I heard the host whisper in his wife's ear, oh my god, we are run out of food for the other guests now. And they laughed. Or that crazy time I booked a room on Airbnb, and the host made me do a test to see if I could fit into her fancy shower because she was worried I might break the glass walls. Or when the tiny daughter of a friend shouted at me Are you fatty because you eat too many biscuits? Want me to carry on? I can do this for hours. I was already overweight by the time I was about 17, And in 18 years since, I never really got why people are always reminding me that I'm fat, always pushing me to lose weight, always congratulating me when they think I've lost a couple of pounds. Also, I don't really know where the line is that divides normal people from fat people. The turning point when you look at yourself and say, fuck, I'm fat. The World Health Organization suggests you take the BMI test, You can easily do it online. You enter your weight and height and it says... Your BMI is 44.8, indicating your weight is in the obese category for adults of your height. Obese. What a scary word. I'm sure by now you are picturing me as one of those slobs you see on the TV shows, larger than the couch they sit on, always falling over their own feet. The type who needs a car to transport his tummy when he goes shopping for another bag of junk food. But I'm not that kind of obese man, not at all. I'm just fat. I can fasten my seatbelt on an airplane, I can walk, I can stand up, I can sit down, I can touch my nose with my finger. How can I see my weight as a problem when it's never been a problem for me? Once I went for a complete checkup to see how these 18 years of obesity have affected my body. Blood, heart, liver, and nothing. I'm perfect. My heart is strong and my blood is normal. Just a little like in HDL, the good cholesterol that prevents heart attacks. So, if the thing that's wrong isn't inside my body, it must be outside it, in the gap between my skin and other people's eyes, because they are the ones who see me as fat, not me. So I asked some friends via WhatsApp to help me understand why my size is an issue. Beh, ovvio che è un problema essere grassi quando è un problema per la salute. Alberto says that being fat becomes a problem when it starts to damage your health. But as I've already said, I'm healthy as a fish, as we say in Italy for fit as a fiddle. Sudi. Ilaria says being fat makes you sweat more than you should. It's funny though, she wakes up at 6 every morning to run, she boxes, she swims, she does crazy gymnastics called circuits and spends a lot of time jumping rope. She probably produces three times the sweat I do. So sweating, no, that's not a problem for me. You should start worrying about being fat when you cannot sleep on your stomach. 
I can sleep anywhere, anytime and in any position. I've dozed off at gigs, in theaters, discos, on the beach, on benches, while driving, even in the middle of an earthquake once. And my weights never stopped me. And yes, I always sleep flat out despite my huge belly. Next one. It's a problem when you can see your own dick, I think. Hey dude, what's up down there? I can see you. I can even see your two friends beneath you, so everything is okay, isn't it? You become always hungry, which is too expensive and a waste of time. I'm not always hungry. I don't spend my day gobbling down one happy meal after another. It's more about an extra slice of pizza here, an extra portion of pasta there, large fries instead of regular, not eating enough fruit and vegetables, which are expensive, by the way, like organic food. It's a problem when uh, I don't fit any clothes, starting from jeans, and this makes me feel terribly uncomfortable. That's the first reasonable point. Clothes are a nightmare, particularly trousers, but I've never felt bad about that. I think that fashion industry should feel bad. They should make bigger sizes, rather than being scared that if a fat guy wears their brand, they will lose customers. And we've got money, we can pay. Il problema nasce quando le persone che vivono attorno a te ti giudicano negativamente. Con il giudizio negativo tu stai male, stare male fa male, quindi diventa un problema. Another good point. Martina says that being fat starts to be a problem when other people say it is, when they say that you are a problem for them. And it's not so easy to feel good about yourself when people are lining up to tell you there's something wrong with the way you look. In the next part of this essay, Jonathan goes on to talk about ballet, punk rock, his first kiss, his current lover, and of course, food. To hear the full story, visit thirdcoastfestival.org. Hosts Fat was produced by Jonathan Zenti and edited by Kathy Fitzgerald for the podcast Meet. Radio is a powerful medium. When harnessed, it can move people to action and inspire change, which is why Third Coast honors these important stories with our Radio Impact Award. For this year's winning story, reporters Alyssa Jong Perry and Will Evans went inside the Tesla plant in Fremont, California, to investigate serious safety concerns. Inside the factory, forklifts and tuggers zip by, lugging materials and towing dollies. We join the fray in a golf cart that takes us past workers clustered around car frames and giant red robots named after X-Men characters, Wolverine, Storm, and Iceman. During the tour, we hear a lot about Tesla's commitment to safety. It's an issue they've been criticized for. In 2015, Tesla workers suffered serious injuries at double the rate of the auto industry. But last year, Tesla CEO Elon Musk told investors the factory has gotten a lot safer. The thing that we're um, making progress on is factory safety. So I, I think we're on track to be uh, less than half the entry rate of the automotive industry and by far better than any other U.S. factory. We'll find out a bit later if that goal was met. On our tour, 
Tesla had us sit in on a safety training. Oh, wait, 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 wait. You see how you have your wrist? No. Let me show you what you were doing, and I'm going to show you what I want you to do, okay? Supervisors show trainees how to hold and use tools and avoid injuries. Don't develop this habit, because what happens is if you're on a side where this kicks up, it's going to come up right up into your face, and you don't want that, right? So... Dennis, the injured factory worker, used to work in the underbody department, grinding down metal welds, drilling holes, and attaching metal plates. I asked him if when he started, he had any hands-on training for the job. No, ma'am, no, not in our area. It was it was hands-on, but the training would be, here's, here's your grinder or here, here's your process, we'll read these work instructions. Tesla told us each new hire gets at least four days of training, which includes two days of hands-on. But we spoke to more than three dozen Tesla employees, and many said the same thing. There wasn't enough safety training. Roger Crony was a factory supervisor before leaving Tesla last year. He used to work at General Motors, and he says Tesla gave him workers who were so unprepared that he created his own training program. And I made complete PowerPoints, spreadsheets, and a complete safety training of everything they're supposed to be doing, what they're going to be wearing to that Pacific area. California's workplace safety agency, CalOSHA, has cited Tesla more than 40 times for health and safety violations at its Fremont plant since 2013. And workers told us the factory was chaotic. Forklifts and tuggers would sometimes collide into workers. He was hit by one of our tugger carts. Okay. And they pinned him and his leg in between another, uh, looks like another heavy cart. They're saying that he has uh, severe bleeding and uh, they think it may be a bone poking out of his pant leg. Several former employees we talked to said accidents like the one we just heard could be avoided if the factory floor was more clearly marked. We noticed the issue on our factory tour. Yeah, there's Wait. a pedestrian path on the gray over there. What, what gray? There's a lot of gray. The dark gray? There's a dark gray? There's a lighter gray for pedestrian. There's a light gray, like, walking path? Not on this area. This is for, for tuggers. But the light gray over there, you should stay on that. While the law doesn't specify a color for the floor, many factories use bright yellow to mark hazards. But former members of Tesla's own environment, health, and safety team told us it was well known that Elon Musk doesn't like yellow. Here's Roger Crony, the former supervisor, again. Well, yeah, he, he wanted the plant to be specific colors. So everything had to be red, gray, had to be red and gray. You know, yellow's obviously the safety color, right? Yeah. This caution color. Was, was, do you think that was a problem? Well, he was a boss. <laughs> so you got to do what the boss say. Color coding may not seem like a big deal, but Justine White says she was told walkways couldn't be marked with yellow because the CEO didn't like the color. Justine was one of five former members of the Environment, Health, and Safety team who told us that at Tesla, production trumped safety. At the end of 2016, she wrote an email to Human Resources saying she couldn't effectively do her job. She wrote, The risk of injury is too high. People are getting hurt every day, and near-hit incidents where people are getting almost crushed or hit by cars is unacceptable. After Hidden Problems in Silicon Valley aired, 
California's Workplace Safety Agency opened an investigation of Tesla that is ongoing. Democratic Congressman Mark Desaulnier called for an intensive, full-facility audit of Tesla and pushed state lawmakers to strengthen laws governing the recording of worker injuries. Tesla also belatedly added 13 injuries to its 2017 injury logs. Hidden Problems in Silicon Valley was produced by Will Evans and Alyssa Jong-Perry and edited by Taki Telenitis and Ziva Brandstetter for a reveal from the Center for Investigative Reporting in partnership with KQED. News stories need to be highly efficient. Lots of facts in little time. But the best news stories do more than that. They take you somewhere, show you something. Each year, Third Coast recognizes a news story for going beyond the quick and the rote. And this year, the Best News Feature Award goes to Overnight in the ER, a look at what it takes to save a gunshot victim's life in real time. In this case, five minutes from the time the patient comes into the ER to the time he's wheeled out to the operating room. It takes place in the Ryder Trauma Center at Jackson Memorial Hospital in Florida. Here's reporter Sammy Mack. EMTs are wheeling a young man. He looks late teens, early 20s. They're wheeling him into the trauma bay DeRosa was just showing off. They have minutes to save him, and the clock starts now. Yep. Bags of replacement blood are already hanging from silver hooks in preparation for his arrival. A tense ballet of nurses, doctors, and techs swirls around him. Someone cuts off his clothes. Blood pools and gurgles around a couple of holes in his chest. The heater is on. DeRosa knows that while this is a normal part of the job for him, it's not normal. And then you go home to your kids, your wife and kids, and you're like, and, you know, she asks you, hey, how was your day? You know, I, I don't want to tell her the truth. I just say, you know, it was good. It was fine. It was, it was a good shift. Can't say, oh, you know, I took care of a 13-month-old because, you know, there was a drive-by and his grandfather was holding him and he got shot in the head. Back in the trauma bay, patient Bravo, they don't use names until later in the process, appears to slip in and out of consciousness. And then he's just out. He's been here a minute and 30 seconds. Even if he survives his gunshot wounds, there's a high risk of mental trauma. I've worked with some patients that were shot, for example, riding their bicycle outside. And they said they will never want to ride a bike again. Dr. Melissa Oliva is a pediatric psychologist who works at Jackson. In 2002, there was a study out of the pediatric department at the Baylor School of Medicine in Texas that looked at the risk of developing post-traumatic stress disorder after a traumatic injury. Half of the kids with gunshot wounds developed PTSD. Oliva says it's especially dangerous when kids leave the hospital with severe long-term injuries. I would say when somebody is not able to go back to their regular lives, especially because of a physical disability or deformity that they now have because of this traumatic experience, there's much more higher risks of depression and anxiety and post-traumatic stress, particularly in that population. And I've had patients even become suicidal. A couple of years ago, Jackson instituted a policy that pediatric gunshot victims automatically get a consult from someone in behavioral health like Oliva. The social worker on duty tonight is Carlene McKenzie. 
She says it can be hard to make a connection with young victims. You know, sometimes when they come in, they don't have any affect. And, you know, you talk to them, sometimes they can be rude. And so they think it's just a joke. They don't take it serious. So, you know, what do you say to somebody like that? I mean, you can talk to them and, you know, ask them, but half of the time they won't speak to you. Three minutes. Patient Bravo is now naked, except for his two black socks and the tubes snaking in and out of his arms and chest. To find out what happens to this patient and meet the people who care for these most vulnerable victims, visit our website, thirdcoastfestival.org. Overnight in the ER was produced by Sammy Mack and edited by Alicia Zuckerman for WLRN News in Miami. It won the 2018 Third Coast Best News Feature Award. And now it's time for the Third Coast Silver Award winner, Man Khubem. I am good. Brave and raw, this story is funny and heartbreaking all at the same time. It's an exploration of a mother-daughter relationship and what it means to really know each other. Sharon Mashihi, we are proud to say, worked on this story at the 2017 Third Coast Radio Residency, a yearly gathering of producers in Chicago dedicated to creating time and space for their projects. We knew, even when we heard it back then in its nascent form, that it was exceptional. It opens with the sentence, My mother does not want me to make this radio story. And after that, well, you just have to listen for yourself. My parents moved our young family to a town called Great Neck, New York, where they could be around other Iranian Jews like themselves. The community was tight. Everybody was in everybody's business. And there were rules. Rule number one. Women must straighten their hair and have manicures and pedicures at all times. Rule number two. Always appear to be as rich as you possibly can. Three. You must drive a Mercedes. If you're broke, you may drive an old broken down Mercedes. Four. Never admit to weakness. If you have cancer, tell no one. If you're unhappy, smile. Do not, under any circumstances, humiliate your family by going to a therapist and incurring the stigma of mental illness. Five, if you're bookish, you must become a doctor or a lawyer. Six, if you're less bookish, you may go into real estate or sell antique rugs. And rule number seven, no boyfriends, no girlfriends. Dating is only for the purposes of marriage. You might ask, how do you end up marrying somebody if they weren't your boyfriend or girlfriend first? The answer is, go to your room and stop asking questions. In Great Neck, the community wasn't very accepting of those who broke the rules. Lucky for my family and me, we were obedient as hell. That said, I don't think my mother ever felt like she totally fit in. For most of my childhood, my mother didn't have friends. I used to hear her tell other adults that I was her best friend. And I felt pride in that. We used to watch Oprah together in the afternoons and go to the supermarket together on the weekends. She'd confide in me about my younger siblings and her relationship with my dad. One day, my mom was straightening my hair, and I started to sing in a fake language, which was something I loved to do. 
Delisa caro de croppa patro cane catira cato de pache la sacotina caro macho no curla fa la catira wututu la faieta catati. On that day, I was really getting into it, jamming to the beat of the blow dryer. But my mother took one look at me and said, Chefe. Chefe is the Persian term for shut up, but it literally translates to choke. I didn't take Chefe to mean that my mother actually wanted me to choke. Farsi is a dramatic language. But I did take it to mean that she had no patience for the weirdest parts of me, which was unfortunate because... I planned to cultivate my weirdness for the rest of my life. And as I got older, I heard the word chafe more and more. Chafe! And I started to break the rules. In particular, rule number one, straight hair, manicures, pedicures. And rule number four, if you're unhappy, smile. In fact, I was very unhappy. When I was 18 years old, I violated number four, Carlary A., do not, under any circumstances, humiliate your family by going to a therapist. It feels a little bit like time travel for me, actually. Yeah. <laughs> I bet. Me too. The other day, I went back to visit my old therapist, a guy named Glenn Berger. He's a gestalt specialist. Very basically, do you remember when I started coming to see you? I do remember that, uh, I know this is going to get on the radio, but I'll say Anyway, but I do remember that your parents were crazy. I felt maybe he's making you to be more different than you were. You wanted so much distance from us. Why did you think you need to talk to a therapist? My reasons for seeing a therapist were complicated. At the time, I just knew that I was sad. Looking back, I think I needed an adult in my life who could tell me that my life was mine and that I wasn't required to adjust myself to appease anyone else. You were very independent. Very independent. In the years AT, after therapy, I realized I needed space from my mom. As long as she and I were close, I found it difficult to be my full self. So my mom and I hung out less and less, and I grew into the adult I am today. A neurotic free spirit with a total unwillingness to compromise. My mother would want me to be well-dressed and feminine in an old-school way. Most of my clothes are secondhand. I wear my hair in a messy bun at the apex of my scalp with Medusa-like curls coming down toward my face. And I don't shave my armpits. She would want me to live in a nice, clean house with a husband and a child. I live in a four-story hippie house with a ragtag crew of artists and queers. She would want me to attend Iranian Jewish formal functions, where I might meet the right kind of man. I spend most of my evenings holed up in someone's bedroom, toiling away at art projects that might never see the light of day. When I was a kid... I used to memorize every detail of my day just so I could repeat it all back to my mom when I got home. I wanted to include her in everything. When I tell my mom about my life now, she gets upset, so I say nothing. I don't tell my mother about my work. I don't tell her about how I spend my time or who my friends are. And most importantly, I don't tell her anything about my boyfriend, Thatcher. Remember rule number seven? 
it still applies when you're 33. My mom would consider Thatcher to be a nightmare. He's 18 years older than I am, divorced with a teenage son, broke, not Jewish, not Persian, and not, I repeat, not expensive looking. My mother is often begging me to visit more, and I would love to hang out with her. I like her. But I don't hang out with her because it's kind of unbearable to constantly report back that I did nothing yesterday and nothing last week and I have nothing planned for tomorrow, when in fact I have a very busy, interesting life full of activities that I do with my boyfriend. I had given up all hope that being honest with my mom would ever be possible until she started listening to Dr. Holoquy. Dr. Holoquy is an Iranian therapist with his own call-in radio show. A therapist. His show is about people calling. They have problems. They discuss it with him. He tries to help them or open their eyes. My mom discovered Dr. Holoquy on the internet. I came across... uh, his name, and then uh, for a few days I was just listening to different radio shows. So you mean you binge-listened the moment you discovered him? Mm, yeah. Dr. Holoquy is really famous. He's stationed in L.A., but people tune in from all over the world, including small towns in Iran. Dr. Holoquy also hosts seminars, writes books, and produces psychology albums. He has eight discs alone on the subject of depression. It's been three years since my mother discovered Dr. Holoquy, and she still listens to him while eating breakfast, lunch, and dinner, whenever she's in the car, when she's at the gym, and even when she's in the shower. I don't know, he can pinpoint things, he can read your mind with two, three sentences. He can diagnose you. Want to know the big lesson my mom has learned that has transformed her life? Don't sweat the small stuff. Don't sweat over small stuff. And before that, you feel like you were sweating over small stuff. I think still I do, but but I'm more aware of it. And I know I'm not alone. What is happening is not just me that's happening to. There is a whole other groups that they are going through the same thing. This is the thing about Dr. Holoquy. Most of the people in my mom's community are so concerned with appearances that no one ever seems to admit to having problems. Listening to him, my mom can easily see that it's possible to be Iranian and human at the same time, that having problems is normal. Several times a year, Dr. Holoquy takes his followers on a four-day cruise that sails the Pacific. When I found out about it, I thought, that's perfect. I like therapy. Now my mom likes therapy. Maybe we can go on the cruise and bond over that. I wanted to ask about the Dr. Holoquy cruise in February 2017. I shelled out $1,300 and got us two tickets. To hear what happens on that cruise, you'll have to listen to all of Man Khuban, I Am Good, the 2018 Third Coast Best Documentary Silver Award winner on our website thirdcoastfestival.org. It was produced by Sharon Mashihi and edited by Bob Carlson for Unfictional. It also aired on The Heart from Radiotopia. 
I spoke to Sharon recently and asked her if her mother had heard the piece. No, my mom hasn't heard the story. We actually still haven't had what I would call an adult conversation about its existence. And I haven't like directly asked her. Like the problem that I had when I was making this story is just like the ongoing problem of my life. I have trouble asking my mother direct questions. And so we've skirted around talking about the piece, but I have not like been like, mom, I can sit down with you and play it and we can listen to it together. She, I mean, I, I, she would probably say no anyway, but I haven't asked her that. You have a real gift for inviting people in. And I don't think it's just that you're very open. I think there's something about your writing style that invites people in. Is that something you've had to work at? Or is that something that has come more naturally to you? I think both are true. My number one philosophy, my mantra, my motto is how is this a gift to the audience? So mm. I I feel that I'm always thinking about that very much. Mm -hmm. And also I'm constantly writing a letter to myself and there's a way that kind of all of my writing is also like that. So other people might feel invited in because I'm writing with an intimacy because I'm writing I'm simultaneously trying to be a gift to the audience and writing to myself. I had a really, really deep longing to keep a journal as a child, which I do now, but I didn't when I was a kid because I knew my mom would read it all and I was afraid I'd get into trouble. And I think that the wish to have a journal and not having one made me perpetually like speaking my journal out loud. It's a theory <laughs> about my childhood. I don't know. And at the risk of um, playing armchair psychologist, do you feel like you've examined that, as you put it, the need to be known, quote unquote, with being brought up by somebody who you feel doesn't know you? Yeah, it completely has to do with that. And I also feel like, to play armchair psychologist a little bit further, I made this radio story so that my mom could know me. And the irony is, is that I'm struggling to play it, to play it for her. But like the only thing I want in the world is for my mom to know me as I am and like me as I am. And I'm projecting that wish onto everybody else I ever meet. Sharon Mashihi, winner of the 2018 Third Coast Richard H. Driehaus Foundation Best Documentary Silver Award. We end this hour with a bit of Sharon's acceptance speech. Um, I learned in making and sharing this story that that is a problem that it turns out a lot of other first-generation Americans have. When you feel isolated inside of a problem, a lot of times it's because that problem is not represented in media. And so, like, make the story about the weird problem, because then it'll be represented in media for other people who feel alone in it. That brings us to the end of this hour of Best of the Best, the 2018 Third Coast Festival broadcast sharing the best documentaries of the year. I'm Gwen Maxi. The program was produced by Isabel Vasquez and distributed by PRX, the public radio exchange. The executive director of the Third Coast Festival is Johanna Zorn. The artistic director is Maya Goldberg-Safer. I'm Gwen Maxi. 
The Third Coast International Audio Festival is made possible with lead funding from the Richard H. Driehaus Foundation and the John D. and Catherine T. MacArthur Foundation. Additional support is provided by the Agadino Foundation, the Menaki Foundation, the National Endowment for the Arts, and the Illinois Arts Council Agency. Special thanks to our many individual contributors from Chicago and around the world. The Third Coast Festival, now an independent arts organization, was originally founded at WBEZ Chicago. Hear all the winning stories from the 2018 competition at thirdcoastfestival.org. Imagine the softest sheets you've ever felt. Now imagine them getting even softer over time. That's what you'll feel with Bowling Branch's organic cotton sheets. In a recent customer survey, 96% replied that Bowling Branch sheets get softer with every wash. Start getting your best night's sleep in these sheets that get softer and softer for years to come. Try their sheets with a 30-night guarantee. Plus get 15% off your first order at BowlingBranch.com. Code BUTTERY. Exclusions apply. See site for details. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And is all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash pack for free shipping and 365-day returns.